0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Do you remember how the task force ended its relationship with you?
1: Yeah, I remember. They just one day my pager never went off again. They just stopped talking to me. It was never there there was never a, a formal We're done using you, stop selling drugs, stop hanging around these people. There was never none of that.
0: Rick Worsh's inside information led to the prosecution of the city's most prominent drug organization. But now that the Currys were off the street, Rick, he was no longer needed. The
2: government, as opposed to thanking him, giving him a medal saying, "Okay, now we're going to send you back to school and we expect you to do well and graduate. They just stopped calling them. That's Rick's lawyer, Ralph Muselli. They just cut him loose. Now, he's used to having money in his pocket.
0: So now they're they're gone. The money's gone. They're gone. Did Did you think about going back to school at all?
1: I tried to go to school in the suburbs for a minute, and it didn't last, and actually I was too, you know, I had become so involved in the streets through working for them that the streets just had a hold on me, and I never left them.
0: In the weeks after the Currys get locked up, Rick
3: starts dating a young woman. A 24-year-old Kathy Volson Curry uh, seduces 16-year-old Rick Wershey.
0: Kathy Volson Curry as in Johnny Curry's wife, as in Mayor Coleman Young's
3: niece. She was a status symbol. Crime historian, Scott Bernstein. She was someone that said to everyone, not only is this guy for real, not only is he a 6 year old white kid operating in an all black drug underworld, but he's gonna date the mayor's niece and now he's gonna have all the same contacts that Johnny Curry had, all the same doors now open for him that open for Johnny Curry when you have Kathy Curry on your arm.
4: From WDIV and Grand Media, this is Shattered, the White Boy Rick Story. Chapter 4, I'm No Cocaine Kingpin.
1: What was she like? She was a good girl. She wasn't hard to look at, you know. Me and her had hung out before with Johnny and we were somewhat friends, and it was, I think she felt comfortable with me, and I felt comfortable with her, and one thing led to another. It, was, it wasn't it was ever like we were in love or any of that. It was just I was there, and she was there, and, you know.
0: You didn't think it was a bad thing necessarily for Rick to be dating her?
5: In the beginning, no.
0: Rick's sister, Don
1: Scott.
5: As time went on, it was all about money with her. You know, money, money, money. What are you going to buy me? And I'm thinking, oh, my God.
0: Do you think that her connections then were possibly an encouragement for you to, to re- rev it up and selling drugs?
1: I mean, of course you're that age and you look at the power that Johnny had and you look at the pull that she had. And I thought that I could, you know, use that to my advantage. But I was 17 years old. I, I didn't really I was in way over my head for a 17 year old.
3: He took his mentor's wife, who was almost a decade older than him, it it just upped the ante on everything about Rick's persona. It made him more attractive to other women. It made him more of an entity to the other drug dealers around the city. It just put him in a different stratosphere of gangland figure
0: People make a big deal out of uh, him hooking up with Kathy after you were gone. Right. How do you look at all that, Listen, Life goes on.
4: You left tomorrow, today, your wife, whatever. You still got to keep moving and live life, enjoy life, every moment that you can. So that wasn't a big issue, by because he started messing around with my wife. Come on, what about the next person who started messing around? Are I supposed to get mad at everybody? I don't work like that.
0: You were gone for a long time, right?
4: Gone for a long time, so life moves on. So what can I say?
0: Yeah. Once Rick started dating the mayor's niece, he learned she had a police detail assigned to follow her just in case she got into trouble. She had direct phone numbers to powerful people inside the police department. And naturally, Rick would benefit from this type of inside information. Do you think if Kathy hadn't knocked on your door, if you hadn't gone, to, <clears throat> you know, gotten closer with her, do you, do you think you might not have gotten into the drug trade as heavy as you did?
1: I don't know. I mean, I can't. As a fair statement, I I can't blame her for it. Listen, I was blinded by the streets, Kevin. I was overwhelmed with the cars and the money and the jewelry. You know what I mean? And I'm hanging around guys that are, you know, in the 80s, driving $100,000 cars. And, you know, we're wearing $30,000 watches and gold belts. And, you know, we're going to Miami and blowing ten grand in a weekend. And we're going out on yachts. Mm -hmm.
0: Rick's sister Dawn. She saw it like this.
5: I believe the money, the drug dealing. It, it, I believe it like is like a sickness. The more, you know, the more you get, the more you want. You just, you know, it's like sort of like someone I guess who has a gambling addiction. They they win a jackpot, but it's not enough. They need a bigger one. They need more. You know, they got a they got a Mercedes. They need a bigger Mercedes. You know, trying to keep up with the Joneses in the neighborhood.
1: It was a life that you see on TV, or it was almost like the life of a rock star.
0: Rick estimates he earned about thirty grand from his time as an informant, but he was spending his money faster than he was making it. He figured he'd start selling drugs. The feds had already taught him how to do it. And with Kathy at his side, he figured he'd get away with it. So he reached out to a guy he thought could help, Art Derrick.
1: Art was probably one of the biggest drug dealers ever in the city of Detroit.
0: And how'd you get a relationship with him?
1: I met him... Oh, God, I met him when I was working for the feds, just hanging out in the streets. And me and him became close, and he almost became like a father figure to me, and he treated me good. He invited me to his house. I swam in his pool. Me and his son became very close. I used drugs heavily, so I would find him passed out in his car on parked in our driveway, and I would call his wife and drive him home and she would be like oh rick thank you you know he'd take me to vegas and pay for everything me and him would jump on the jet and go to miami
0: was is that story true like was one of his planes like either owned by the rolling stones or the Beatles or somebody
1: yeah he bought a uh, plane from the rolling stones i think he bought two planes from the rolling stones
0: was that what was that like being in that
1: actually, to me, it was nothing. I didn't really, I was a 17-year-old or 16-year-old kid from the ghetto. I was more fascinated by Run-DMC than the Rolling Stones.
0: What about being in a private jet for a kid from the neighborhood?
1: You know, I'll never forget taking off from City Airport, and I flew over. My grandparents are in a mausoleum, and we flew over, and I told him, I said, my grandpa's buried in there. I wish he could see me now, you know? And looking back, if my grandpa could have saw me then, he probably would have slapped the shit out of me.
0: Rick used his connections to Art Derek to establish himself as a wholesale Coke dealer.
2: Here he is. He's got a contact down in Florida where he could go down there, and he had like a $100,000 line of credit. So he would go down there, he would get hundred thousand dollars worth of cocaine on credit. He would come up and he would sell
0: it to the various distribution gangs in the eleven months that he sold cocaine. Rick wasn't a curry level dealer, according to Rick's lawyer, Ralph Muselli. He was known as a weight man, a wholesaler,
2: and he would probably make about thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars at that time on that kind of a load and then he
0: would pay his debt and next month do it again he wasn't a curry level dealer but now rick was bringing in kilos and as his sales grew rival drug dealers started to see rick as competition which put him at risk plus some people on the street were suspicious he was working with police who's who's nate boonecraft
1: everyone knew who he was on the east side i mean he was a drug dealer drug user hitman. man he, he got a pretty big reputation as being a killer
4: my name is nathaniel Kraft. most of y'all may know me as nate boone Kraft, the grand reaper
0: back in the 80s Kraft was part of the best friends organization earlier you heard retired fbi agent herm groman describe the best friends as a violent enforcement gang so, best friends is basically a nice name for a group of guys who protected drug organizations through violence.
1: Uh, I mean, at the time, I didn't know I had a beef with Nate.
0: Somebody called,
4: said they want White Boy Rick taken out. I was like, okay, how much they offer? He said they said a uh, hundred thousand.
1: Yeah, he came for me, he tried to kill me on
4: Outer Drive.
1: out Drive in Dickerson. Dickerson? Uh, We were sitting at a stoplight. When he
4: pulled up his stop, we pulled
1: up on the side of him. And we were in a Corvette convertible, and I saw a van. I was looking, I was in the passenger seat. We had the music up pretty loud, and I happened to glance over my shoulder. God willing, I saw the slide door on the van opening. And I told my buddy, I said, pull off, and he didn't hear me and I reached my leg over the thing and I pushed on the gas and we went through the red light. And shoo, he was gone. <laughs> and that's when the shots rang out. Did the car get hit? Oh, yeah, it hit the car pretty good. The whole driver's side.
4: But hitting the car ain't the whole routine. Don't kill a car, kill that person
0: in the car. That's who we come to kill. Went, what went through your mind
1: then? I mean. Actually, we made sure neither one of us were hit. And to be honest, to show you again how, you know, that life becomes somewhat normal, we went to where we were going.
0: Nate Bloom Craft has confessed to over 30 murders. He served 18 years. But because he cooperated with police, he's been out since 2008. Rick was lucky to have survived the Nate Craft hit, but he had a lot more trouble ahead. This time, from the people he used to work for, the Detroit Police Department.
5: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
0: It's a hot May evening in 1987. Rick just got back to Detroit from Florida. He has a lot of cocaine to sell. He goes out to try and find buyers. One gives him $35,000 cash in a plastic grocery bag. Rick takes the money back to his grandparents' house where he's
3: keeping his stash. He was, at that time, being driven around by a crew member of his by the name of uh, Roy Grissom, who went by the nickname Bones. And Bones Grissom was in the uh, driver's seat, and Rick was in the passenger seat.
1: We were going to go drop the money off. It was for a couple keys of Coke.
3: Before he can get there, a
0: police cruiser pulls Rick and Grissom over.
1: I think he was just pulling me over to, to bullshit and talk, as we had done in the past. And we had that money in the car, and he had a new partner that didn't really know me, and one thing led to another, and that's how this whole thing started.
0: Neighbors are out on their porches. Rick's sister Dawn, she's at her grandparents' house. Their dad is there, too.
5: It was two houses from my grandparents where they pulled them over, and we saw, like, this whole thing unfold. I mean, as far as we know, it's a traffic stop.
1: We were never speed or ran a stop sign or any of that bullshit that they proclaimed. We never had a gun in the car. we went from point A on Hayes to point B on Hampshire and no one speeds with thirty some thousand dollars in the car. That's no one We weren't idiots. We were drug dealers. I mean, you know you might not be the smartest person in the world, but you know if you're riding dirty that you're not going to speed or blow through a stop sign. They, they wanted the money. That was all they wanted. It, it, if we would have just gave them the money, Kevin, they would have went away.
0: But that's not what happened.
5: That's when my dad ran over there and looked in the car and saw the bag of money, grabbed the bag of money out of the front seat off the floor, and ran to my grandma's with it.
0: While this scuffle's going on, Rick disappears.
1: I just took off to the back, to the side of the houses, through the melee. I, I was just going to wait for it to die down and go back.
2: While they chase him down, they pistol whip him. They bring him, throw him over the fence.
1: Oh, yeah, they gave me the best beating I've ever had.
2: And they arrested him. Because you ran or just because they could?
1: It It was probably because I ran. But after I was in cuffs, he said I resisted. How do you resist after you're in cuffs? I came down off the porch and put my hands behind my back. I never resisted.
2: Well, they didn't find any drugs on him. They found a packet of drugs, a box of drugs, on the next street half a block down underneath somebody else's porch. Attorney Ralph Muselli. The problem was they couldn't connect him to it. There were no fingerprints on it, at least not Rick's.
0: But they arrested him They charged him. Just one year earlier, Rick was working with the Detroit police narcotics officers. Now, they had him in handcuffs. And the criminal charges were serious, real serious. Possession with intent to sell 8 kilos or nearly 18 pounds of cocaine. Well, during the 80s with the
2: explosion of the drug epidemic in, in, in Michigan and in Detroit, They came up with a very, very harsh law. And they said, if you're caught with more than 650 grams of a narcotic, your sentence is going to be life with no possibility of parole. It's as severe as if you were, you murdered somebody, you were convicted of first degree murder.
0: Under the 650 lifer law, Rick stood to spend the rest of his life in prison with no chance of parole. When his former FBI handlers found out what had happened, they set up a meeting with Rick and his family.
1: I believe we met at a motel someplace out in Roseville.
0: Rick was out on bond at the time. Herm Groman was one of Rick's FBI handlers.
1: And we sat down in the hotel room, and I remember where she was concerned that, um, although he had legal representation at the time, he was concerned that... uh, he, uh, things might really uh, not go well for him in the uh, recorder's court.
0: And now, Groman had a proposal.
1: Identifying local people who he was involved in the uh, drug trade, his sources of supply down in Florida, and anything else that uh, was of any uh, significance.
0: In exchange, Groman every... said he would do whatever he could for Rick in the drug case.
1: You know, they said that they would try and get me, like, three years in prison. And, you know, it, it was... What they wanted me to do basically
0: amounted to a death sentence. It would have been a death sentence how?
1: What they wanted me to go out and do for them. I probably would have ended up dead.
0: Oh, because you would have been uh, uh, informing on people?
1: Yeah.
0: Rick says that what he would have had to do for the FBI in that deal would have basically amounted to a death sentence for him. How do you see it? Well,
2: I don't see it that way. I mean, there's a lot of options that are available. Uh, one is relocation to the Federal Witness Protection Program. He would have been a prime candidate. So uh, I don't agree
4: with that.
0: Rick had a lot to think about. He would have to inform on criminal drug dealers. Plus, the FBI was not willing to admit they used him as a teenage drug informant. Information Rick thought was crucial for the judge to hear before sentencing. Why didn't the FBI come forward at Rick Jr.'s trial and say, hey, this guy was working as an informant?
2: Well, it's a good question. Wershey uh, uh, Jr. was never uh, officially on the books as uh, an informant. His father was. And the, uh, the informant relationship with the father uh, had been cut off uh, uh, probably
0: a year or so before Wershey uh, had been arrested. After a few days, Rick called Grohman.
1: And he said, uh, you know, they've evaluated uh, whether or not they should cooperate at this point. And uh, they said they were going to take their chances in court. So they did.
0: Instead of trying to strike a plea deal, Rick's rolling the dice by going to trial. He's getting advice from his attorney, well-known mob lawyer, Bill Buffalino. But also chirping in his ear, his girlfriend and niece of Coleman Young, Kathy Wilson Curry. And at some point in time,
2: Coleman Young called Bill Buffalino. Bill's dead now. Bill died about 12 years ago. He had a heart attack. And he said, back out of this man. This is bigger than you know. And uh, this is the mayor calling. This is the mayor calling. And then Rick gets a call from Kathy. And Kathy said, my uncle says, if you hire these other two attorneys and discharge your attorney, this case will never go to trial. And the two attorneys that he was told to hire were two ex-circuit court judges, Ed Bell and Sam Gardner. They took a lot of
0: money off of the Wershey family. So now Rick's life is in the hands of two new attorneys, hand-picked by Mayor Coleman Young.
5: I think they didn't want my brother with Kathy. I don't think the mayor did. Here's this punk white drug dealer with my niece. So I think that they played a large part in things going the way they did in the court.
0: At the time, Rick thought these attorneys had an inside track in helping him beat the charges. 30 years later, still sitting in prison, he thinks it might have been a setup.
1: I don't think everything was done that could have been done to help win an acquittal. I think things were held back. I think people weren't subpoenaed. I I think much more could have been done than was done. And I think they sold me out. That's my feelings.
0: Remember, this case hinged on connecting the drugs to Rick and there were no fingerprints on the drugs. Attorney Bill Buffalino wanted to make that the focal point of the case, but he was no longer in charge. Rick's new attorneys, Gardner and Bell, went in a different direction. They withdrew the motion to address the fingerprints.
1: So why would you pull a motion that you're no worse off if you win or lose? When you're 18 years old and you think the system is fair, you don't look at things like this
0: filling the wooden benches that were there for the
3: public to view the proceedings and spilling out into the hallways teenage kids with beepers and Fila jumpsuits and shiny Nike gym shoes were making quite a scene themselves and they were in the courtroom, they were out
0: on the streets chanting, free white boy Rick it was a huge scene one of the people who was there, hitman Nate Boonecraft who says he was still trying to finish the job as he waited for Rick outside the courthouse. He still had a contract on him.
1: We saw him at trial and he was dressed up as a security guard.
4: I told my boy what the deal was, we need to pick two spots and hit up from both directions. Cause you know that you take him out that way or this way, either which
0: way, we got him.
1: Your, your antennas go up when you see someone like Nate creeping around.
0: Did you alter your patterns at all or do anything different?
1: We just paid better attention, and, and we let him know that we knew that he was there.
4: Somebody must have told them that somebody was going to hit him.
0: Once again, Rick was able to escape make craft, But inside the courtroom, he had the jury to face. The white skinny kid with mop-top hair, accused of being a Motor City drug kingpin, was a wildly popular news event.
1: The word kingpin... Is way overused in the justice system. Let's stay, stick with El Chapo or Pablo Escobar as a kingpin. A kingpin's not someone who goes and gets coke from someone else.
0: On Friday, January 15, 1988, after deliberating for four days, the jury sent a note to the judge. They had reached a verdict. The foreman standing up and reading out loud. We the jury find the defendant, Richard Worshi Jr., guilty as charged. So take me inside your head when you heard the, the guilty verdict, when they actually said the words,
1: I think I was in shock. I didn't cry. I didn't break down. I, I think I was in shock.
0: Less than three years after Rick becomes one of the youngest drug informants ever, he's sent to prison for life without parole.
5: They wouldn't allow me to go to court that day because they were worried how I'd react. I tended to be a little bit extravagant in my feelings and words back then. And uh, they said, no, you can't come. And I remember begging Rick, don't go. They're gonna find you guilty. Don't go, don't go, don't go. Cause I knew I was gonna lose my brother and, um, When I saw the news, they found him guilty. I was just devastated.
0: Their dad, on the other hand, he was furious. He stormed out of the courtroom and allegedly threatened a Detroit police officer. Richard Wershey Sr. said something to the effect of,
1: I hope you all sleep well at night knowing what you did to my son.
0: Rick Wershey Sr. was arrested and charged, and for good measure, they threw in an additional charge for possessing a gun silencer, which they found in a raid on his home. Wershey Sr. was mad as hell. He wanted people to know his family got screwed. He told a reporter from the Detroit Monthly, they used me, they used my son, and now they turn around and fuck us over? In a series of interviews, Rick Sr. came out and told several reporters that he and Rick Jr. were federal informants working for the government to bring down drug dealers but nobody really believed them. The federal task force that hired them wouldn't cop to using an underage kid for information. So Rick went off to prison.
1: It was definitely a culture shock. I mean, the first prison I ended up at was Scott's on Five Mile and Beck Road. And that was more of, kind of almost like a college dorm setting. And then I ended up at Michigan Reformatory, which was like, they called it gladiator school. And I'll never forget my first day there. I watched a guy get shanked in the neck.
0: Rick believes one of the reasons he got into this entire mess is because he became a police informant. What he doesn't know is his informing days aren't over yet. Coming up.
1: She was so greedy and so desperate. She said, hey... You know, my dad can arrange to have swipes of cocaine blown in. They were uh, eager to get involved in this uh, illicit business. So we're
4: ready to talk a little business? Yes, Yes, sir. Okay. Basically, uh,
1: you know, our routine.
0: Today's episode was produced by Zach Rosen and me. It was edited and mixed by Zach Rosen. Tad Davis is our assistant producer. WDIV's executive producer of special projects is Ro Coppola. WDIV's news director is Kim Voet. My name is Kevin Dietz. Jerry Leminew created original illustrations for each episode of this season. See them at whiteboyrick.show. If you like the podcast, consider writing a review for us in the Apple Podcast Store. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shattered Podcast.